Romans 8, beginning to read at verse 5. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the spirits of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Let's pray as we stand. Our loving Father, we come before you clothed in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ as those who trust in him. And we ask, as we've sung, would you, peel, would you please, as we come and study your word together, would you fill us with your love and power by your spirit to live lives of surrender? To you we pray. Amen. Please take a seat. Now, well, we've been thinking then over the last few weeks about how we change in the Christian life. She was saying this, uh, this middle section of the book of Romans, which we're looking at, largely concerned then with change. So if chapters 1 to 4, look, we know we need to become Christians. How we become Christians, we need to because the wrath of God is upon us, uh, and we do so by trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we obtain his righteousness, reckoned to us, put on us like a cloak. Um, but now how do we change? How do we go on and live the Christian life? And we've said it's essentially the same way. It's by believing the gospel. That's how we'll make progress in the Christian life. As we come to uh, chapter 8 of this book of Romans, we said th- this chapter is largely concerned then with uh, the work of the Spirit, how he, God's Spirit, who dwells in all believers, how he enables us to change. And there are two great works emphasised, really, in the chapter. Uh, one is he assures us that we'll always be Christians, that we'll never fall away. Uh, and secondly, he changes us. He transforms us. And we'll see both of those playing out together. 
Uh, now, last week in verses 1 to 4, we, uh, if you remember, we were in the courtroom, uh, very much using that language, that there is no condemnation upon us. Uh, the trial, which we all have to face because of the way we treated God, is behind us, not in front of us. It's happened. Jesus Christ was condemned for our crimes. There is no condemnation ahead of us. There is no trial. We're through it. We now live a life as, as free men and women. That was the main point of verses 1 to 4. There is no condemnation. We're in the court, remember, but tonight then we're, in the, we're on the battlefield. It's a slightly different image or metaphor that the Apostle Paul uses. We're on the battlefield. Please, if you've let them uh, uh, fall close, do open your Bibles at Romans chapter 8. And let me read... Um, which in some senses is, is the central verse, although we need to explain that rightly, of, um, of what we're looking at tonight, which is verse 13 of Romans chapter 8. If you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. What we need to do is put to death the misdeeds of the body. We need to kill off the sin in our lives. That's the main uh, implication or, or, or imperative that we're going to be told tonight. How do we fight sin? So tonight we're thinking the Christian life is a fight. It's a battle. It's a fight against sin. Not against other people, no sense of crusade or anything like that. But we're fighting the sin which is within us, which we know to be true for Christians. Now, the language which has been used in the past of this is mortify, which is a terrific word. That was the word used in the King James Bible. It's, it's the word that's been used by uh, many of the greats in church history. We need to mortify our sins. Now, we have a slight problem with that word because now it means be mildly em or embarrassed. You know, oh, I, was, I was mortified at work because I was caught out. I hadn't done that work. And my boss discovered... Or, oh, he saw me without my makeup, I was mortified. <laughs> um, leave aside those. Mortification, classically then, biblically, is putting to death. Now, the great hero on this topic is a man called John Owen, uh, writing 500 years ago. Um, he wrote an excellent little book, The Mortification of Sin, which I would tell you all to read, but it's quite hard work. Brilliant, quite hard work. So what we do instead is we read this book by a chap called Chris Lungard called The Enemy Within. And he unashamedly says, what I've done is I've taken John Owen and I've translated it for the 21st century. Brilliant. That's a real gift. Because the content is gold dust and now the language is clear. But John Owen is the master and in this whole area of killing off sin, he uses... Um, a really helpful image, which is, it's like chopping back a plant. Now, I don't know if you've got gardens or um, pot plants or whatever it is, but there's an annoying plant. So what you can do is you can just chop off, a few, chop off a few leaves and cut it back a bit, but it's no good. It'll just grow back. What you need to do is get into the root and kill it. I had no understanding of this whatsoever until my uh, father-in-law told me. So there's an annoying and very annoying tree in our garden that kept growing back, kept growing back. We drilled into the root and injected it with poison. It died. Very pleasing. <laughs> That's what we've got to do with sin. 
it's no good sort of messing around on the periphery. You know, we can, we can you know, adjust our little behaviours day by day. We can do that. We need to get to the root of it. Kill it at its root. That, that is mortifying. Killing off sin. Now, people try to do this superficially, and it's no good. It's no good. You know, today, today, I'm not going to be angry. You wake up in the morning, I'm not going to be angry today. I'm just, I'm just, going, to not, I'm just not going to do that. It's hopeless, isn't it? You can't make those resolutions in the morning. You know, because something happens, it's just, and off you go. You know, it's, it's deeper seated than that. We need to get to the root. So how do we make progress? How do we mortify sin? What we're going to see tonight, it's not by imposing law. It's not something we can ignore. But it's spirit-led war. It's not by imposing law. That is, it isn't just a terrific act of self-control. That is the sort of Rambo-like warfare. I've seen a trailer for the new Rambo film. It looks awful. (laughs) I read a couple of reviews. They say it's awful. And that sort of theology is awful. I'm just going to grip my teeth and change by sheer will and self-control. You won't do it. You won't do it. You can't do that. So it's not by imposing law. It's not something we ignore. So not the Neville Chamberlain approach. Let's just pretend it'll all go away. You can't just think, I'm a Christian now, I'll change. God will just blow me and I'll just change and that'll be all right. No, you you need to fight. It is spirit-led war. So uh, to try and push this further, it's like going into battle with an all-powerful ally who's on your side, who is good, who will help you win. Spirit-led war. That's what we're called to. Now, uh, I make no apologies as I begin. This is, not, this is not a technique to change we're talking about tonight. If you want sort of uh, five steps, how to improve your life, there are plenty of self-help, self-help books you can go and buy. This is supernatural living. And I make no apologies for that. This is the work of the Spirit of Jesus Christ in Christians, in believers. So look, there's loads for you to learn if you're not yet a Christian, loads for you to learn here. But primarily what we're talking about here is a supernatural work done within us by God's Holy Spirit. He's not just a technique to follow. And what we'll see is we need to work through it like this. If we're going to make progress in the Christian life, if we're going to kill off sin in our lives... We need to do these things. We need to recognise that the Spirit brings forgiveness and new life. Verses 5 to 11. Then you'll put to death sin in your life. Verses 12 to 13. As you're led by the Spirit of Sonship. Verses 14 to 17. Now the order of those is absolutely crucial. You see it's basically one statement summarising the whole chapter. But the order is crucial. In order to fight, which is the middle point there, put to death sin... It's surrounded on both sides by who we are. If we're going to make progress in the Christian life, we need to know who we are. Any attempt to kill off sin has got to be framed by the gospel of who we are in the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, let's, uh, let's push on him. So first then, we need to recognise that the Spirit brings new life. Verses 5 to 11. Now, if you're reading, if you're following it as it was read, you'll see Paul really talks about two regimes here and how we live in them. 
Uh, You're either under the sinful nature, that regime, or you're under the spirit. One of two regimes. Remember last week we talked about them in terms of two giants. You're either held captive by one giant, you can call him giant, sin, death, sinful nature, he's got all these names. Or you're in this other regime and you're lovingly protected by giant spirit. Okay, you're under one of those two regimes. All of us are, without exception. Let's trace them through. So uh, some then live according to the sinful nature. That is, they're not a Christian. That's all that language means. They live according to the sinful nature. What does that mean? Well, follow it through with me. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what their nature desires. Verse 6, their mind is or leads to death. Verse 7, the sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. And those under the sinful nature, under that regime, cannot please God. That is the description of non-Christian living. Hostile to God, does not submit to God's law, cannot submit to God's law, cannot please God. Now look, I'm no fool. (laughs) I know if you're sat here and you're not a Christian, that sounds pretty offensive. I know that. Let me try and explain what he means by that. Uh, C.S. Lewis's book um, in the Narnia series, The Silver Chair, it starts off the two, uh, two children, Jill and Eustace. They're commissioned by Aslan, who you know is the, is the Jesus Christ figure in all the books in the Narnia series. Uh, Jill and Eustace are commissioned by Aslan to go and find Prince Rillian. He is uh, uh, heir to the throne of Narnia. And his father, King Caspian Tenth, I think it is, is dying. And the throne is going to be vacant and that'll be a disaster. So they've got to go and find Prince Rillian. Well, where is he? Well, as a child, he was he just disappeared as a child. And rumours have it that the Emerald Witch captured him and um, befuddled his mind with her spells. So Aslan says, you've got to go and find Prince Rillian, okay. So off they go and they have numerous adventures and it's a terrific read, as you'd expect. And they pick up another friend along the, on the way, Puddle Glum, and uh, he goes with them. Eventually, then, they come to the land of the Emerald Witch. And uh, one of the first people they meet is this lovely guy. He's a lovely bloke. He's very pleasant to them. He helps them. He gives them all the food and aid and and support they need. He he really helps them out. And um, they can't quite work out, you know, you're a nice guy. Why why are you working for the Emerald Witch? Oh, she's all right. She's all right. I'm going to be her. I belong to her. She's all right. No problem. He says, the only problem I've got is that um, once a day at midnight, I have a sort of uh, fit and I have to be locked into this silver chair. I know, pretty weird. Anyway, one night they go with him and see him have this fit. And in truth, what it is, is that at midnight every day, his memory rises up within him. And he remembers, actually, he is Prince Rillian. It's just that the witch has befuddled his mind. He's enchanted, so can't remember it, apart from once a day. So Jill, Eustace Puddle Glum, they, what should we do? They release him. He destroys the chair and he's free. He's come to his senses. He's got his mind again. And so uh, he goes and destroys the queen, uh, the Emerald Witch, and returns to Narnia, becomes um, 
King Rillian the Disenchanted, not miserable, but he's had his enchantment removed. I got very confused by that as a kid. Um, now, it's not perfect, but do you see, when he was under the Emerald Witch, he could not keep the law of Narnia. He could not do what was pleasing to Aslan. Yeah, he was a nice guy. He did lots of good stuff. But he was fundamentally on the wrong team. And Paul is saying that is true of people who are not Christians. You can do wonderful things. You can do lots of great stuff in this world, in your life. But you're on the wrong team. You have hostility towards God. And you need to change teams. What you need to do is, is trust that the Lord Jesus died for you. And then the Spirit comes and opens up your mind, takes away the befuddlement, we could say, the enchantment, and we see the truth. Okay, now I have a new mind. Okay, now I want to live differently. Okay, now I belong to King Aslan, the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to live for him now. I want to live differently. Do you see how that works? When the Spirit comes and takes us away from this regime of uh, sin, death, sinful nature, and puts us in under the new regime of the Spirit. He gives us a new mind. We see things clearly. We see things truly. And we're now on the right team. We can live in a way which pleases the living God. So that's the second group we started to look at. Those who live according to the Spirit. Let's just trace them through so we can see the obvious difference. At verse 5, those who live in accordance with the Spirit, they have their mind set on what the Spirit desires. Verse 6, the mind controlled by the Spirit is or leads to life and peace. Verse 9, the Spirit of God lives in you. It's very different. Completely different scheme. Let's, let's bring it back to a normal language that we use every day. What Paul is saying is before we become a Christian, we're just, our mindset... We're just obsessed with the things of this world. We're obsessively living for money, career, reputation, sex, intimacy. We're obsessed with these things. When you become a Christian, you get given a new mindset. You recognize now how wonderful God is. That actually you are made for a relationship with him. That the only way to find rest in your life, rather than constantly chasing after more and more and more, is to know him. The way to find satisfaction is in him. The way for fulfillment is in him. You get given a new mind. This is not an imperative. Paul isn't saying, Christians, you need to change your minds. He's just saying, look, this is what happens. This is what happens when you become a Christian. The Spirit gives you a new mindset. Now, we still yearn after those old things a little bit. But fundamentally now, we're facing in a new direction. We're looking to follow, to serve the living God now. The Spirit has given us a new mind, new life. And he pushes on, verses 9 to 11. Okay, Christians, look, you've, got a, you've, got a, you've got this wonderful change that's happened in you. You've got a new mind. But look at some of the benefits of this. Verses 9 to 11. Verse 9, you're not controlled by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit. 
You don't have to hanker after those things anymore. Verse 9, the Spirit of Christ lives in you. You belong to him, the one who used to be his enemy. Your spirit is alive because of righteousness, verse 10. That is, you have new life within you because you have been given the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And your mortal body will be raised, verse 11. Look, we're all going to die a physical death. That's inevitable. But if the Spirit of Christ lives in you, you'll live again. You'll be raised again, immortally. Those are wonderful benefits. Paul starts off by saying, look, if there's going to be change... We need to recognise who we are. Do we see that? Christians, do we see who we are? We belong to him now. New power, new life within us, new mindset and orientation, new future. It's very different. We need to recognise that the Spirit brings new life. Okay, having done that, then verses 12 to 13, once we've recognised that, then, then you'll put to death sin in your life verses 12 and 13. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you'll live. Once we recognise we're forgiven people, once we recognise that Jesus has given us due life, we'll want to live differently. We'll live for him. We have an obligation. We know that. We'll want to be different. And we want to put to death the misdeeds of the body. We want to put to death our sin. And it's got to be this way round. Only when we know who we are will we have the strength and power to actually kill off sin at its root, at the motivational centre. Now look, this language is pretty strong, isn't it? Put to death the misdeeds of the body. I guess it shows that these, that these desires that we have within us, they're strong. You can't, you can't mess around with them. That the sin that we have within us, it isn't to be trifled with. We need to put to death, kill, strangle, suffocate, slaughter the sin within us. Strong language. Because it needs to be. The Christian life is one of warfare if we want to change. Warfare against our sin. And it matters, verse 13, if you live according to the sinful nature, you'll die. If by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you'll live. Now, that isn't a, oh my goodness, am I fighting? Am I fighting? I, I, I'm not sure I'm fighting. Am I on the road to life or the road to death? No, this is, it's indicative. If you are a Christian, you will do this. You will put to death the misdeeds of your body. Now, we could all be doing it more. And the more we understand who we are, and the more we understand what the Spirit has done in applying the benefits of Jesus Christ, then we'll want to do it more. But this is indicative. It'll flow out of who we are in Jesus Christ. The Christian life is one of war. Are we fighting? Now look, there's a whole world of difference, of course, between uh, knowing this and uh, understanding, okay, Christian life is one of the war, and doing it. A whole world of difference. Uh, many years ago, when I was younger and fitter, I uh, did a short stint um, 
in the British Army as a chaplain. It was a very short stint indeed. Um, I uh, spent a little, uh, a little bit of time, it was a couple of weeks. The, um, uh, yeah, it was all embarrassing. Um, but I spent a couple of weeks at um, Sandhurst where they train uh, the officers for the British Army. And I remember uh, you know, sitting at the back of uh, a lecture hall and they had some lectures on Fibua. That's ba basically all I really learned during my time there. Fibua, fighting in built-up areas. Okay, there's about two people nodding, so two people get this, have done some military training. And you sit there and think, oh, that's very interesting. Oh, that's how you, you know, okay, so if there's, um, you know, snipers on the roofs, okay, that's how you get them. Okay, that'll be useful in my life as a vicar. Um, <laughs> uh, but it was interesting, you know, you, you know, everyone, most boys like to pretend they're soldiers at some point in their lives. Um, so that was interesting and, and stimulating. I enjoyed that. Uh, and then you go on exercise. Okay, that's a bit different. <laughs> um, it's training, so uh, it's not live ammo, and uh, they're not real grenades that explode. They're grenades that explode and let off smoke rather than kill you, but it's still pretty terrifying. It's all going off. You know, it's loud. It's chaotic. It's noisy. It's, it's like a war zone. You run. You hide. Um, it's for real, you know, and then the sergeants come up to you and say, oh, you might want to move now, sir. Oh, really? Why is that? Uh, a grenade has just rolled onto your foot. <laughs> and you, you, know, you, you it's very different when you're actually fighting. Very different. The lecture room, yeah, interesting. Okay, I've learned some stuff there. Fighting is different. See, we can't, we can't read this and think, oh, yes, that's interesting. We can't go home and think, oh, interesting sermon, middle of Romans 8, but Christian life's a bit like a fight. Ooh, how stimulating. Can't do that. We've got to fight. We've got to fight. We've got to fight a spirit-led war. It's not something we can ignore and just assume that we'll make progress in the Christian life. We've got to fight. Or in the language that the Lord Jesus uses, um, what do we do with our sin? We gouge it out. If our eye is causing us to sin, we gouge it out. If our hand causing us to sin, we chop it off. Now, of course, he's, he's using um, uh, striking language. He doesn't literally mean it, but he's saying you've got to take it that seriously. You know, sin is a, it's a beast to be slain in our lives. Kill it. Fight it. Hate it. It's very strong. That's the attitude we're to adopt. How do we do this? How do we do this? It is by the Spirit, verse 13. By the Spirit, you put to death the misdeeds of the body. Now, it's very, I mean, it's very striking this. How does this work? Okay, so Paul says to us, fight. Okay, Paul, how do we do it? By the Spirit. Okay, give me the Spirit. Um, oh, he's not a weapon. He's not an instrument. He's a person. He's God. Well, how do I fight by God, by the Spirit? How, how does that work? Well, let's push on. Third little thing. We're put to death sin in our lives as we're led by the spirit of sonship. Verses 14 to 17. Uh, just to get the sense, let's pick it up again, middle of verse 13. Uh, if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you'll live. Because those who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. 
question. How, how then does the Spirit enable me to fight sin, to put it to death in my life? Is it by, um, is it by fear? Does the Spirit say, look, unless you put to death sin in your life, you're, you're, going, you know, you're going to be in trouble? You, know, you can't be certain you're a Christian? No. Rather, the Spirit says, do you realise you're a son, a daughter? You are adopted into the family of God. Now, let that knowledge fill your heart and your mind. Now go, because you'll want to put to death sin. See, there's an enormous contrast. Verse uh, 15, you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave to fear, but the spirit of sonship. The spirit doesn't stir up fear in us. Well, I've got, to, I've got to do this, I've got to do this, otherwise maybe I'm not a Christian. It stirs up in us childlike affection for God. God, he's my father. I want to live for him. That's what I want to do. It's the work of the Spirit. Verses 15 and 16, they are, they are beautiful verses of intimacy. The Spirit makes us feel like we are a child of the living God. We can call God Father. You can't, that is so different from any other religious system or moral system in the world. You can't call God Father if you're Muslim. You can't do that if you're a Jew. You can't do that if you're a, a religious sort of person. You don't cry out to God, Father, help me. Now, this is unique to being a Christian. This work of the Spirit within us. And you see, it's, um, it's not something we comprehend logically. Yes, I, I agree with you, I understand, and I agree with your theology of the Apostle Paul that I can call God my Father. It's not something we sort of deduce logically or agree with. It's something we enjoy emotionally. The Spirit works on our affections. So it's this language of Abba. It is Papa. So while we rightly reverence the living God, because he's God, we also say to him, and you're my papa, you're my dad, I'm intimate with you. And so it is that the Christian, you know, the normal Christian experience is something to enjoy this emotionally. So we do cry out, perhaps at the beginning of the Christian life, God, you're my father and I now think you're there and I have a relationship with you and that is different. And at different stages in the Christian life, we, we call out to him, Lord God, I, d I don't understand what you're doing. I don't understand why my life is like this right now. But you're still my father, and I trust you because you're good. That's the work of the Spirit. He persuades us we can pray those prayers. What are better times in our lives? Lord God, you are wonderful. You are terrific. And I'm just thrilled to be a Christian, and that's great. All of those, the whole range of experiences, but the fact that we can call out and make those sort of intimate prayers, it's because of the work of the Spirit. He changes us, helps us to enjoy God emotionally. That growing up, I had a friend uh, who lived just around the corner. She was my sister's friend, really, but you know, um, we all played together. Her, friend was, her name was Nicholas. She was adopted. And in that uh, stupid way you do as kids, I remember getting to the age, and uh, I, she was about three years older than me, but I said to her, oh, you're adopted, what's that like? I mean, oh, 
You know, what a question to ask a, a child. But it's amazing. I never forget her response because it was so striking. She said, it is, it is wonderful. I owe my adoptive parents everything. They've, they've given me everything I have in life. All that I am is because of them. They've educated me, fed me. They've given me a loving family. And that's been wonderful. And they've loved me. And that's made me who I am. It's a wonderful thing to be adopted by loving parents. And that is what the Spirit persuades us of. It is a great thing to have God as our Father, to be adopted as his son or daughter. So do you see then that killing sin, killing sin, it's the effect of our sonship, not the cause. That's so important. Killing off sin is an effect that flows from us being sons. It's not if we put to death sin, then we'll become sons or enjoy being sons. Because we're sons, we'll want to put to death sin. The logic is so, so important. As we delight in our status of sons of God, then we'll be motivated to fight. Then we'll want to. But the order is really important. Okay, so we've got to recognize the Spirit brings forgiveness, a new life. Then you're put to death, sin in your life, as you're led by the Spirit of Sonship. What does that look like? Day to day. Or, okay, fine, there's, there's my framework, and that's the most important thing. Now what do I do? Let me give you some uh, practical stuff. What does this putting to death look like in practice? Uh, remember John Owen's picture? You can't just chop away the, the top of the plant. You need to get down and kill the root. Getting to the motivational heart of sin. That's the key. Now let me take one example as I I flow through this. I'm going to give you a few few steps. But let me give you one example of sexual sin. Sexual temptation. Okay? It's, It's our culture. We live, we're young people, in an urban city center. It's all around us. Let's take it as an example. Sexual temptation. How do we deal with that? How do we put it to death? Owen says, look, follow these four steps. This is not me, this is John Owen. Follow these four steps. First then, your conscience must be framed by the gospel. The obligation to put to death sin has got to be surrounded by the gospel. And you see, it's so clear in this passage. Put to death sin is surrounded by, look, you'll only do that if if you know you've got new life in the spirit. And you'll only do that as you know that you're a child of God. When you know those things, then you'll want to put to death sin. So if you're going to make any progress, you've got to know who you are in Jesus Christ. You've got to know that first. The knowledge that we're forgiven, no condemnation. The knowledge that there's new life within us, power to change. That's got to be in the place first. Conscience has got to be framed by uh, by the gospel. Uh, Lundgaard, he sums it up helpfully. He says... uh, It is the motivations of the heart which must change. That's why we need the gospel. The gospel is the silver bullet, the stake in the heart, kryptonite rolled into one. I think it's just a great picture. The gospel is the silver bullet, the stake in the heart, kryptonite rolled into one. It kills it all. 
Now, he's not, you know, don't get carried away. We're not vampires, werewolves, Superman, all rolled into one. But you know what he's saying. You know what he's saying. It is the key. Knowing who you are in Jesus Christ, that's the key if you're going to make progress. Secondly, discern the shape of your sin. Um, why, why am I doing this? Why am I tempted into sexual sin? What is, the, what is the root going on behind this? Is it because my culture says I won't be fulfilled unless I have sex, and so I feel unfulfilled? Is it because I, I feel a lack of intimacy, and I, I feel I need to be valued, and I'll get my value this way? Why am I throwing myself into this behaviour? Is it because actually I have a low view of people? Can that be true? I'm happy to view people as objects to gratify me. Is that true of my heart? Might be. What's going on? Discern the shape of your sin, he says. Uh, thirdly, recognise not just the consequences but the guilt of sin. And look, this is a conversation I have with a number of people. It's very easy when we're caught out in sin and we know we've bungled to feel the consequences. The consequences for other people, we've made a mess for them. The consequences in our own lives, we just have to live with the mess we've made. Plus there might be a loss of assurance, a loss of joy in the Christian life. There are consequences. And people tend to regret them when they acknowledge their sin. That's okay, that's good, says John Owen, but you need to go further. You need to recognise the guilt of sin. Know that your sin has offended God. It grieves the spirit. There is a, a right sense in which to feel, I've let God down. I feel bad about that. That is an evangelical guilt, is his language. It's okay. It's good to feel that. I've let God down. I have grieved him. I'm saying, Jesus, you die for me, but I don't care. I'm just going to, you know, here's another one. Shove that on your cross. Hate the sin. Not just the consequences. Hate it. Recognize sin for what it is. Awful. Foul. Ugly. We need to learn to look at our sin and loathe it. Not just intellectualize it. Oh, yes, I can see that that's quite bad. Mm, I shouldn't do that. Loathe it. Associate it for what it is. Disgusting. And if it helps you, put the appropriate biblical mental picture on it. So for sexual sin, 1 Corinthians 6 would say, if you have sex outside of marriage, you're, you're harming your own body. So you're tempted to think, oh, okay, I'm, I, you know, I might sleep with him. You might as well just go out and self-harm. That's what you're doing says Paul. Now that's a, you know, oh, some of you think, oh, easy, it's a bit strong. Well, the problem is, because sexual temptation comes at us, we're bombarded with images, 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 we need to counter it with biblical images. Get back. First of all, I know who I am in Jesus Christ. I don't, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm different now. Secondly, sin is, is repugnant. It isn't just okay. It isn't just a little slip. Whoops. It's awful. To recognize sin for what it is, hate it. Fourth and lastly, lay, lay siege to your sins. Lay siege to them. Uh, another great Puritan writer, sort of contemporary of John Owen, Richard Baxter, put it this way. 
He said, keep as far away as you can from those temptations that feed and strengthen the sins that would overcome you. Lay siege to your sins. Starve them out. Keep away the food and the fuel, which is their maintenance and their life. Lay siege to your sins. What what fuels our lusts? What are we likely to to make this error to bog up? Well, it's not, not hard, is it? These things happen when it's late at night, when people have had a few drinks, when you're in a private place alone together. That's when these things happen. I mean, Baxter's just talking common sense here. Don't starve those things off. Don't let them happen. Just cut them off. It's just common sense. It's a warfare. If you want to defeat this, you want to capture this castle, lay siege to it. Don't just let them have everything they want. You'll never win. If you want to win, starve it. Starve your sins of what they need. Lay siege to them. Four steps. I found them very helpful. But fundamentally, fundamentally, it's knowing who we are in Jesus Christ. That's what makes the difference. Mortification, putting to death, it comes through confidence that there's no condemnation upon us. Delight that we're a child of God. Only when these things are in place will we have the desire, will we want to fight, we want to kill. We, we just won't want to do it otherwise. We've got to know who we are. This is how Christians make progress in the Christian life. Not by imposing law. I'm just going to do it. Not something we can ignore. Oh, I'll just happen. It's spirit-led War. We declare war on our sins. This is the way the child of God lives. We take the knowledge that God is our Father who loves us. We remind ourselves that he's given us new life. He's given us a new mind. We think differently now. And then we fight. We've got to know who we are. Mortification comes through delight in being a child of God. Um, the last uh, Lord of the Rings film, The Return of the King. Uh, many of you would have seen that. The, um, the king in that film, Aragorn. Things are looking bleak. It's the middle of the film. Things are looking a bit bleak because, um, uh, well, he's gonna, they're going to lose. The, um, the kingdom of man is just going to be destroyed and wiped out because the enemy, Sauron, and his forces, they're just too great. He just, he just can't win, and he knows that. Uh, but one night, a uh, dark night, along comes to him Elrond, the elven king, and says to him, basically, look, how are you doing? Well, we're going to lose, aren't we? Possibly, yeah. Well, I'm a bit depressed about that. (laughs) Elrond says, no, look, there is a way. And I don't know if you remember this, but he pulls out the sword and says, this is, these are the shards of Narsil. This is the new sword, Arindel. And this is the sword that destroyed Sauron once. It's yours. He says, put aside the ranger and become the king you were born to be. And Aragorn's eyes, they see the sword. He draws it. He sees what it is. He thinks, yeah. Actually, I'm the king. I'm going to go and summon all those troops and they're going to follow me. I'm going to win. 
We're going to go and rescue the city of Gondor. Put aside the ranger. Become the king you were born to be. Will you recognise Aragorn, who you are? Now go and fight. And there's a sense that's true of the Christian. We need to recognise who we are. The living God has given us his spirit. And the spirit persuades us of all these wonderful gospel truths of who we are in Jesus Christ, that we're a child of God, that he loves us, that we're not condemned. Now go and fight. Know who you are and go and fight. Put to death your sin. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that um, there is a double reward to the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only does he save us from sin by giving us his righteousness, but he enables us to live differently. He enables us to live a life which is glorifying to you. Uh, thank you for the work of your Spirit in persuading us of all these wonderful gospel truths, in changing us and transforming us so we have a new mind, a new ambition and we're persuaded of how much you love us. Father, would the knowledge of who we are now as Christians, would that drive us on to fight? Would we fight a spirit-led war against our sin? Not just superficially, but taking it back to the deepest level, so that truly we live lives which are glorifying to you. In Jesus' name, amen.